All right, David Bluff. I have to admit I was a little bit starstruck with this conversation because David Pluff was my boss's 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 boss on the Obama campaign. He was very close to President Barack Obama. He first was the campaign manager for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign and then moved into the White House and was a senior advisor. I have to say that the conversation was inspirational and exciting but also um, made me worried because David himself was really nervous about what's going to happen in this upcoming election. So, listen in. Okay, enough clapping. David, you can come out of my office now. It's David! <laughs> How do you feel about that little rock star reveal that I just did there? It literally is a closet, by the way. I know. Can with you some great quotes in there, like Teddy Roosevelt's The Arena quote. Yes. AOC comic books. Yes. Not everyone sees that. You get, you get a, that's probably like, you probably feel really special <laughs> compared to all the rooms you've been in. You've been in a lot of interesting rooms, haven't you? Uh, mostly interesting. Mostly interesting. Some I wanted to run out of, but yeah, mostly interesting. Jupiter, we, uh, need, to, uh, we need to up both mics a, lot, a little bit more, okay, Jupiter? Thank you so much. That's our events manager, Jupiter Peraza, over there. Okay, so... You know, I'll tell you one room that I found not interesting and I wanted to run out of. So I actually, back in 2017, uh, was in Washington. And one of the things, uh, you know, at my day job we work on is trying to be a constructive force, uh, helping those trying to pass comprehensive immigration reform. So back then, it sounds crazy now, there was a chance the Trump administration would try and cut a deal for Dreamers, right? So I had to meet with, uh, with just a brilliant and esteemed Jared Kushner. Uh, who I didn't realize till I got to my old uh, building, is in my old office. He's and, sitting in your old office? Yeah, and we had a rule in the White House, basically no TVs because we find it distracting, other than for like, you know, we had it in the Situation Room for National Disasters. And literally it was like being in a sports bar. It was like five 50-inch TVs. And I I've met Jared once, I'm like, I don't know him. I'm like, Jared, what's up with the TVs? He's like, you gotta know my father-in-law. Reality to him is TV, so we gotta be watching it at all times. I was really bummed out to hear that. Obviously, I've been more bummed out by other things recently, but yeah. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. sucks. So that was not an interesting room. Well, maybe it was interesting, it was horrifying. I don't want to talk about Donald Trump too much tonight. Thank goodness. Because we can, obviously, but um, one of the, you, I feel like we're, we're so excited that we get to have some time with you because you've seen the man up close who, if there is hope that's being brought to us right now, at least for me, it's, it's kind of living vicariously through people who were close to him and also thinking back to a better time. Um, so if it's okay, I'd like to kind of start at the, at the, at the campaign that you managed. And I, w I had some questions about the early days. Uh, and the first question I had was, um, what was your first memory of meeting uh, then state senator, or then Senator Barack Obama? No, I met him first at the end of 2002. He was a state senator. Um, I met him for breakfast in Chicago because our firm, I was partners with David Axelrod in a political consulting firm, and there was going to be a Senate race in 2004 in Illinois, um, and Obama was going to be the person who raised the least money, was given the least chance to win. But everybody we knew, and David in particular, who's lived out there forever, just said, you know, I'm not sure any of that matters. Like, I just, you got to meet this guy. He's an amazing guy. So I met him, and, you know, I thought, you know, number one, it would be really a credit to Illinois and the country if a guy like this could get in the United States Senate. 
which is not the way it used to be back in the history books. I wouldn't say these are like our most hundred impressive people serving in the Senate. So I thought this would be a really good addition to that body. Um, but it was a fascinating discussion, too. He was asking me questions about the campaign, and you know, he didn't want a scheduler, he wanted to schedule himself, he wanted to drive himself, he kept blowing off his call time. So that conversation, he was like a, a, a tier four congressional candidate in terms of the way he was approaching his campaign. Uh, and to think, you know, six years later, he just won the presidency, an amazing uh, journey. I feel like I want to, the follow-up question I want to ask is kind of thinking back to that campaign, to 2008, um, you know, what do you credit to, because what do you credit to his winning the primary? Let's start with that, because this time, actually, let's take us back to um, September 2007, right? So right, right now, but you know, 12 years before when he, he had announced he was running right. for president. What, what was going on in that point? So I'm going to answer that, but give me two um, points I want to make about that that's important. You could do whatever you want. No. So first of all, it is in the primary right now. These candidates are pretty much just stretching. They haven't begun any athletic event yet. We have so much road to travel, so just be patient. Now, if you've decided who you want to work for and you want to work your heart off for them and go to Iowa and Nevada, you should. But in terms of wondering who's going to win, we don't have the first foggiest idea yet. Secondly, and you know, Manny was in New Hampshire for us in 2012, by the way, Grafton County. I think Obama won by 11,000 votes. Um, you know, uh, the prognosticators, most famously back then, Nate Silver, gave Barack Obama at this time a 20% chance to win re-election. So any of you think Donald Trump can't win a second term, uh, we better assume he might and act accordingly. This time in uh, September 07, Obama was trailing in the national polls by 30 points. Wait, wait, Third. so th this time he was trailing national polls by 30 Hillary points. was about 50, and we were around 20, and Edwards, John Edwards, remember him, was around 20, okay? So we were considered, got off to a good start, raised some good money, smart guy, ain't gonna happen, okay? Even in Iowa, so today you're seeing the thing that generally happens, and again, polls are like horseshit, okay? But when you look at enough of them, they show you some trends that are important. So the national polls right now, uh, you know, pretty consistently, Biden's got anywhere from a 15 to 16 point lead. Right now, he and Warren are tied. She might be up one or two in Iowa. So that's where the race is happening. The only place that matters right now is Iowa, okay? And so even in Iowa in 07, we were down. I think we we're in third place, both in our polling and their polling. And so our entire bet in the entire campaign and in Iowa was that we could find enough people who were young, even some 17-year-olds, people who'd never participated in politics before, never been to a caucus. Basically, you know, to think about it from a marketing, market analysis, right? If you're a business, here's your customers. You can grab them from your competitor, uh, or you can create a new market. Barack Obama had to create a new market. We could not win the election with the electorate as it was. We had to change it, and that's what we did. Um, and that's why we surprised people in Iowa, and we only did that because of amazing young organizers and volunteers who believed in him, he believed in them. You can't manufacture that. I can't tell how many times after the Obama campaign, including the issue with some of the people running for president, like, how do we use technology, and how do we build a grassroots organization? And said, you can't manufacture any of it. It either exists or it doesn't. People are not gonna give their time, in particular, even more so than their money, if they're not passionate about you, and they believe that you're at, that you believe in them. Because so many times people volunteer, and it seems like an afterthought. We weren't perfect, but I think, you know this, you were on the ground. Every volunteer for us was the most important person in the world. 
because our entire election was about getting tough to turn out people to turn out and getting persuadable voters. Like in Grafton, there was a lot of people who would tell us, can I curse in here or no? Oh, you can definitely fucking curse in here. You know? So I apologize. There's too much of that. I guess it's a, now it's like you I'm can't. I'm surprised. It's, like not, it's actually cool not to curse. But, but voters would be like, I can't, I'll just, I can't frickin' believe I'm voting for the black guy, but I'm gonna do this. You don't do have this. to say frickin', you, okay. can, you can say the F word. But they got a sense that like he cared about him and it was time for a change and so that, but, but the reason they got there was somebody in their circle, friend, family member, somebody they trust talked to them about it and said, I'm gonna do this thing, you ought to do it too. So, so this time in 07, we were given up for dead. That's not an exaggeration. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I feel like you have to answer it a certain way, but I'm just going to ask you to anyway to see if you answer it differently, but you won't, so I'm just going to do it. Which is, was there a moment where you, th where you thought about giving up? No, so I would say... See, I knew it. Um, well, there was... So the, the toughest conversation I had in that... In fact, I saw you know, the foreign president last week when he was out here, and we were talking about this, was um, there was a time around this time when, you know, we weren't giving up, but John Lewis, who was Barack Obama's, you know, hero like he is to a lot of us, had just endorsed Hillary Clinton. You know, Obama talked to Lewis and said, I love you, but you're not gonna win, you know? And um, he was like, listen, I, I think we still got a shot. I don't think it's a great shot, but if I'm not gonna win, like, should I start doing more work to build up my African-American support? Because I'm just living in Iowa. And if I'm gonna lose, I don't wanna lose as someone who couldn't get support from his own community. And so um, he was on the road, I was in Chicago. It was actually a really nice night, um, warm, like election night was. And we just talked for a couple hours and basically ended up like, we gotta stick to the plan. But that was a, that was a tough moment. After we lost New Hampshire primary, um, I think we bounced back well. Um, and I tried to rally the staff and, and, and convince everybody, including myself, we had a way forward. We were rocked by that. And so I still think one of the more surprising things about Obama's elevation of the presidency isn't that he won Iowa, it's that we recovered from losing New Hampshire. So I asked Dan Pfeiffer this because it was wonderful to hear his take on it, but can you tell us a little bit about what it was like um, on election night when you won? 08? Yes. Well, I think maybe this isn't to a person, but for those of us that were kind of the core group that got this going and Michelle Obama and Barack Obama, our favorite political night is still winning the Iowa caucuses more than winning the presidency. Why is that? Well, at that point, we pro even we thought it was probably more likely Hillary would win the nomination, right? <laughs> so we thought even if we lost the nomination, Iowa was almost perfect. It's what we set out to do. Turnout was, was, was a massive record. You had young people, you had Republicans, you had independents, you had African-American community, Latino community over participating. It was like heaven. Uh, and we thought that's good, that's what politics should be. So it ratified our strategy, number one, but more importantly, it was a great, um, a great inspiring night. Um, and so that is still the more magical political night. You gotta remember, 08, we win, financial crisis. There was no celebrating. Even in 2012 when we run, in part thanks to your work in New Hampshire, like I remember like, we're literally like finally in um, Chicago, uh, we, I think we're in like John Favreau's hotel room. Hey. The bar closed, the bar closed, and we were pretty modest people in the Obama world, but we tried to convince the hotel GM, I'm like, come on, man, we just won, will you keep the bar open? He's like, no, we gotta shut down, the city will like come in here. So we like raid everybody's mini bars, we like huddling around. Um, uh, we watched Carl Rove, you know, uh, meltdown, because he didn't think we won Ohio. 
But it was like, you know, one beer and we had a call about the fiscal cliff, you know, 7 a.m. So neither of these, there was, I will tell you, in 08 and 12, in 08 there was none. And if anything, it was like, holy shit. And he changed overnight. Secret Service changed. But, you know, he had to put together an administration and handle a financial crisis. Um, in 2012, um, you know, we were dealing with the Republicans and all that shenanigans. So for us, it was really the Ohio, uh, Iowa night. Sorry. No worries, Did you finish man. already? Yeah. That was, that was the whole I was thing. filibustering a little bit, too. And, oh, God. Um, ah, no, you were supposed to keep going so I could do that no, no, thing. No. Damn. Um, well, okay, this is, ah, I do remember my question. So people keep talking about how the campaign that you managed in 2008 was, you know, you use technology in this new and innovative way. Um, but, and, and people are now, I hear a lot of people talking about how technology can be used in this election. But the question I had for you was, do you think that the reason why it was so inspiring the way technology was being used in 2008 was that technology in general just kind of seemed cooler and more interesting, there were less negatives? Like, the fact that a Twitter town hall happened, it was like sparkly and new and exciting, and now like Twitter, when you, when you say the word Twitter, like you think of, you know, bots and like Russia and, you know, a crazy president. You don't think of like, ooh, a town hall, you know? So. Yeah, what do you think about that and how people are talking about the use of technology now and rose-colored glasses with 2008? Well, there's no doubt that some of that. I mean, listen, you know, 2008, it seems like the prehistoric era, the way we use technology. It was like, we were a website-first campaign. <laughs> think about that. We did build our own uh, social networking site called MyBarackObama.com, which is a super important organizing tool. Um, we were on Twitter. Pretty much no one else was. Um, remember Meetup? We used Meetup. We used all these things. But so I'd say yeah. So when we, when when a president would do events out here or candidate Obama, like go to LinkedIn campuses or Facebook or yeah, it was kind of cool. It was like wow, a president's hanging with these new companies. But for us, the, the technology was just a way to scale our organization and allow people to take control of their own um, participation in the campaign. That's still true today, by the way. So as we look at at 20, we know that Putin and Kim Jong-un, maybe not the Ukrainians now, but uh, and the Trump campaign are going to be involved in a way that's going to look 2016 seem gentle and harmless. So we're going to be fighting through all that. But let's not forget, we all can use social media uh, in amazingly powerful ways to spread message. The one thing I think we all need to do more of, and I'm working on a book that's coming out in March called A Citizen's Guide to Defeating Donald Trump, which is... Which I think you've already agreed to do a book talk. Tonight here. I did, yes. I will yeah, talk about so that. So he's going to be but back, I feel, you guys. I feel very passionate about it because it's the question I've gotten most often in my political career from people who are supporting you. What can I do? What else can I do, right? And so, well, I'm certainly not gonna have all the answers, but I do two things. I've run presidential campaigns. So I'm putting out in every section of this book why what you as an individual can do can matter, okay? This is not like nice to have, it's must have. Secondly, social media, I'm sure a lot of us in 2016, I made this mistake, maybe even through most of Trump's presidency, to the extent we send emails even, or text chains, or social media, we complain about something Trump did. We're not pushing the positive message. Our nominee does not have Fox. Our nominee does not have their ecosystem. We have to say when they've got a student loan plan, it's not gonna penetrate unless all of us, every day, are helping push that message. And my last message is, um, it's on all of us. We cannot assume that our nominee will be a savior, or their campaign will be perfect, or that Trump's will be imperfect. If we don't do everything we can do, when we think about you know, social media, hosting events, traveling to battleground states, 
creating content yourself, which is going to be much more impactful than what the campaign does because it doesn't seem like propaganda. We all can do so much more. And if we don't, this guy's going to win because his turnout is going to be astronomically high. This is the one thing, even with his poll numbers, which are shit, heading into re-election. His turnout is going to be through this roof. So if, you th if he needed 420,000 votes to win Wisconsin last time, he's, you're, he'll, he'll probably get 500 or 510. And that is like going from here to another solar system. So we all need to be on our game. And, we can, and our nominee is literally going to take the nomination, best case scenario, April. More likely June. They got to turn around and face off this guy and his team who've been sitting there planning for this moment. Okay? We would not have beaten Mitt Romney if we didn't have a year and a half to get ready for him. George W. Bush would not have beaten John Kerry. It is an enormous advantage. Now, if we head into recession, there's probably not anything that will save Donald J. Trump. But if we don't, this thing's going to be a coin flip in my view. And even if we win by a little more than a coin flip, then let's win by more and we'll bring a lot more Democrats in. Like, this is it. So for me, all of us as citizens better go through. I was at an event not too long ago here in San Francisco. Um, most people either could have the time or the financial ability to go to Battleground State. And I said, how many of you went out in 16? Not a single person went out. Said, honestly, you deserve Donald Trump. You deserve him. You deserve him. That's what it's going to take. And I know that puts a lot of pressure on all of us. It's what has to happen. It's got to be much better than we had in the Obama campaign, in my view. So sorry for that lecture, but. Just to quickly take on that, um, I'm proud to say that in 2016, my RFD, Rob Avrush, who's in the audience, where's Rob? Over there. We actually went back to the same district that we organized in 2012. So we went to the same towns, the same county, the same people, knocked on the same doors that we did four years earlier to organize the area that we had organized before. And I was really um, disheartened to see so many people waffle on who they were going to vote. And I tried to do my best to convince them. Uh, and, I, and I hope that I can go back to that same part of New Hampshire and do it again in 2020. I, I think I just want to extend your message and say, uh, w I, I know you're writing a book about this, so I don't want to give all the answers, but at this point, you know, what, is, what, would you, what advice would you give to all the concerned-looking people in the audience that are staring up at you right now uh, to be doing right now in September? Well, we have a primary, so that I think it's important to understand, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out in March is... Um, most primaries and caucuses will be over. We may not know who our nominee is, but it'll be down to a couple people. And as your state votes, people move on to the general election. So it's really to prepare yourself. So can you spend time in battleground states? How much time are you going to be able to spend phone banking remotely or uh, at a local uh, phone bank here in San Francisco? What kind of financial resources can you give? Do you have a skill, content creation? Um, what I mean by that is, if you're in if you're in Grafton, New Hampshire, and your neighbor voted for Obama in 12, Trump in 16, and have they decided to now vote for our nominee, you ought to go film them, and you ought to share that, because you never know what's going to capture someone's attention. Um, you need to think through. I think um, all of us have some of us. My guess is, on average, there's you know anywhere from 30 to 75 people we have some sense of how they're going to vote. So this may seem like they're all going to tell you, like, stop annoying me. Are you registered? If you've moved, have you re-registered? If you're in college in a battleground state, have you registered there? Um, do you have a plan to volunteer? Are you going to vote early? Like, we just have to be on this. Like, we have to have our own checklist of people we can directly influence. And then think through, what is my financial capability? But honestly, um, I say in the book, the shortest chapter in my book is around fundraising. 
because it's now the easiest thing for us all to do and it's incredibly important. But if you have to sacrifice something, sacrifice your time, not your money. So this is like, what else can you do? So I think it's making a plan. By the way, if you're supporting um, uh, a, a candidate who wins the primary, even here in California, you know friends uh, who, are, who supported other candidates, bring them over to your house and say, how are we gonna move on together? That has to happen, that's gonna be hard. I did a lot of that with Hillary Clinton supporters. And it was brutal, man, okay? And I learned really to say nothing, okay? And let people process it, and let them complain about things we did. But we all, like, that's important. We can all do that. Say, I know that my candidate wasn't your choice, but let's figure out a way to move. To so there's so much we can do, I think, and a lot of that doesn't have to be in formal ways. It can be. The most important thing is to volunteer through our campaign nominees apparatus, which is a lot of great groups, as we know, emerging every day, helping with that. But just informally, like, what are you doing to live and breathe this? And I think just the level of, quite frankly, obsession and anxiety about this, I think, is helpful. Um, so that would be my view. Like, I wouldn't worry too much about it right now, because we have a primary going on, and that needs to sort itself out. But it's really be thoughtful about, let's think of the eight or 10 things that might be possible for me to do. Which of them are realistic for me to do? You won't be able to do them all. That's what we have to do. And I guess my only lesson is don't assume that like, you know, if Elizabeth Warren's our nominee or Joe Biden is or Beto O'Rourke or Bernie Sanders, like wherever their headquarters is, they got it all figured out. Because having gone this through this, I can assure you they don't have it all figured out. Wow. Okay. A lot to unpack there. I'm going to ask a couple more questions about this coming election, and then I'm going to go to leadership, and then we're going to open it up mm -hmm. to audience Q&A. Um, and I understand if you can't answer some of these questions, but which candidate will you say is displaying the most Obama-esque qualities at this point in the, in the, in the primary? Well, I appreciate that, Manny, but I think that's the wrong question. Obama is the past. He'd be the first person to tell you. Like, who's displaying the qualities for this election? And I'm not trying to dodge. It's okay. It is too early to know. So somebody who's performed, first of all, the person who's getting the votes they need is generally the best candidate. So let's wait till people start voting. That means a lot. But how do they perform under that spotlight, you know, when they have a setback, when they are the front runner? You learn a lot about people. So I don't know yet. Um, I don't know but that But like we, you're, yeah. you're at home and you're like- I don't know who I'm voting for. I'm you're being drinking your tea. I don't know who I'm voting for yet. Neither do I. So. I'm going to wait okay. until I get But you'll tell me when to. you're ready, right? Yeah. Great. Awesome. Um, do you think there's too many people running? Uh, like, you had this three-way split that was bruising, yeah. and now we have a 12-way sp sp split. Um, and it looks like there's more candidates. I mean, like, the next, in October, they might move it to two nights because Tulsi Gabbard and Tom Steyer mm -hmm. are in. So do you think, like, what, what's your take on the whole, there's too many people, Shut Well, up. first of all, there's nothing we can do about people choose to run, right? And the DNC just put out their new rules for the November debate, which are more stringent, which I would imagine will cut it down at least below 10, maybe below 8. So I think that's healthy. Um, here's, I'm gonna, this, I'm gonna answer this as kind of a practitioner. So my concern is less that it's somehow harming our ability to win. It's that when there's this many people on the stage, it doesn't represent what you're gonna be heading to in the general election. Like, I can't tell you how important it was for the one-on-one -on -one debates Obama had with Clinton. Eventually, it got down to that. And she was good at debates, and that made us better. And we won all three debates against McCain. That was not his sport in the decathlon. He was never the strongest debater. So I worry a little bit about that, for these people to get sharp. 
um, when there's like nine, you almost can fall asleep, honestly. And it's like, I'm going to get seven minutes. I'll make the best of the seven minutes. And so I don't love that. But I think we'll be, so maybe by November we get below eight. And then listen, by Iowa, after Iowa, you'll be down to four most, after South Carolina, two or three. So it sort of sorts itself out. The great winnowing will be upon us before we know it. The great winnowing. Yes. <laughs> that should be a chapter in a future book for you. Um, copyrighted by Manny's. <laughs> So you were a senior advisor to the President of the United States of America, right? Most days. Most days. What does that mean, exactly? Like, what did you advise President Obama on? Because you were there for a while, and you were also yeah. obviously very close to him before, still are close to him. So with what did you, on what did you advise him in the White House? So I was there, um, you know, 11 through the beginning of 13, um, or the end of 10 through 13. And so, um, first of all, you know, my job from a government standpoint was, I mean, you know, I managed our communications team, you know, our, our press secretary, um, but... Um, was Jay Carney the press secretary? Yeah. So I had a he, crush on him. Well, understandably. <laughs> what? You did Wait too? till you hear him say Russian. No, I did not have a crush oh. on Jay. But he was a great uh, mensch. And, uh, he was, was a mensch? Well, we just spent a lot of time traveling the country together. He's just, I love the fact too that he didn't come from politics, you know, he was just an interesting, you know. He was so great. He was great. Uh, wow, dreamy here. He was dreamy. Did anyone else have a question? I was on it. If anybody has One this person. on camera, I would like to send this to Jay later. Actually. Um, it's actually, it's actually, uh, we are getting okay, this. Okay, well, let, seriously. Um, I would love so for you to do my, that. Just FYI, <laughs> for the record, I'm down for that. You can send this to Jay Carney. We're good. So, senior advisor, no, I don't know what the hell Jared Kushner really does, okay, or 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 Ivanka, but you know. Um, that's a relatively new role, you know, Stephanopoulos, and it was Rove, then, you know, David Axelrod and I had the role. And it's basically on, you know, whether it's you're trying to pass a piece of legislation or you're getting ready for the State of the Union or you're in debates, um, you know, like the debt ceiling with the Republicans. Um, you're kind of the person in charge with putting all that together. So you tend to be the person, not on, like, whether we should strike in Syria, generally, I might talk to the president about that, but I'm not going to be someone who's going to be influential. But you're kind of the last person the president will consult on domestic matters like that. Um, and you're thinking through, like, how to, when I say campaign, I mean electoral, but how do you build a campaign for your agenda, right? Um, and how are you managing both unexpected advance and the things you're trying to get done? Um, and, you know, you're there to talk to cabinet secretaries, help them with challenges they're going through. Um, but for me, I was also, even though I was in the White House, I was responsible for the reelection. And so I had my day job, and then I had that. And so as we got deeper into 12, I mean, I'm not complaining. It was the privilege of a lifetime. But it's, it was hard physically. I mean, um, you, you really are you know, not sleeping at all. You, know, you have a White House call at 7 AM Eastern. You've got a campaign call at 7.30. You basically have the White House meeting late at night to wrap the day. You do campaign stuff. I was flying to Chicago a decent amount then. So, um, so that was unique. So, um, and that's what I mean, like, the night the election was over, the next day, like, all that part of my life went away, and we're like, we're dealing with a fiscal cliff and how to deal with Mitch McConnell. And so you dive right back into that. So, um, but I, you know, the truth is, working at the White House, if you don't walk into that building and walk out every day and don't pinch yourself, you should leave that moment. It is the most amazing experience, and it's rarefied air, and you are just literally, you know, there, and you hand it off to the next person. It's, it's the gift of a lifetime. Um, but it is really hard because anything that comes to that floor on the West Wing where the president works is horrible, tough, intractable. Like, there ain't any easy hours or any easy days. That's just the deal. 
And that's what scares me the most about the current occupant, is the presidency is, I think it's gotten too powerful, honestly, but it's enormously powerful. And it's not like, you know, when you're in the Situation Room, which is the place that scares me much more than the Oval Office or the private residence when he's down there, you know, it's not like Trump's team, I mean, it's kind of a bunch of jokers these days, but even back when, like, Mattis was there, you know, it's not like it goes down like Mattis is like, I think we ought to do this, and Trump says, I ought to do that, and Mattis says, no, we're going to do this, and Trump's like, okay. It's like, there's like one vote in the room, okay? It's the president's, particularly on national security and foreign policy issues. So that's what scares me. If this guy has four more years unencumbered by ever facing the voters again, God knows what he'll do. Um, so... Um, we so have, anyway, we have to yeah. fucking win this election. I know. Like we really have to win this election. Like we got to do this. I think it's one of the most important days in American history, not just political history. Cuz I think what happens if Trump gets four more years and that's an 8-year and is um is is going to is going to be around for decades in terms of of the negative effects. So, I have just two questions yeah. left. So that just to to jump off that question, and I actually asked this question to Tom Steyer when he came here. Um, he had a, one of his campaign events here, and I asked about the um, the damage to the symbolic uh, purpose and power of uh, the the position of president. And you know, President Obama was the first. You know, that was the first election that I voted in. Um, and he, you know, set such an incredible example for what kind of person um, we all should be like, him and his family and his wife, of course. Um, and to go from that to this president, it's such a stark change. And I just, I wonder, what, what would you say is something that can be done when we win, um, you know, next year to restore some of that, um, the, the institution of the office of the president and how it should represent the best in us? Well, I think if assuming one of our candidates here becomes a nominee and beats Trump, I, I think they'll do the lion's share of the work there. I mean, I think they're going to need our help. So, you know, when they're trying to pass, um, you know, climate change legislation or whether it's Medicare for all or Medicare for all who want it, we better work almost as hard on that as we did on the campaign. They're going to need our help going forward. But I, there is a question like, is Trump an interruption essentially? Or is this how politics are always going to be? And can we elect people like this to presidency? Um, I may naively uh, believe this, but I don't think this has to be the new normal. Um, and um, any of the people running for president will restore the sense of we you know, problem solve with our allies. <laughs> we know who our allies are and who our enemies are. Uh, do not degrade huge uh, segments of the American population. Do not pit us against each other. Whether they're super successful with their legislation or not, uh, the moment they put their hand on the Bible on January 20th, 2021, it makes a big difference. And listen, the next time there's a Republican president, I don't think it's going to be a Trump mini-me. I hope I'm right about that. Um, I, I hope that this is an interruption. But um, that's why he's already done enough damage. There are maybe, if not millions, hundreds of thousands of young people around the country today who think it's all okay to attack people based on the skin color uh, and based on um, whether they're an immigrant. Think about how worse and, and the compounding effect that that's eight years. There's obviously now a lot of Republican politicians who don't think they have to be truthful about anything, never apologize about anything. And so that will live us for a while. But again, I think the difference between eight years of that, because if he wins, in many respects, it's ratification. I don't know if it's normalization, but it's ratification. And that's super scary. Honestly, if I'm honest, like that motivates me more than any issue right now. And I'm motivated by a lot of issues is we cannot have that stamp of approval on Donald Trump by getting a second term. And that's in many respects what it, what it does because 
Um, we, by the way, when a president wins a second term, in many respects, that's a more um, meaningful election because it's all about you and what you did and what you're suggesting for the next four years. And so if he gets that vote of confidence, even if it's only with 47 or 48% of the people, I think it's incredibly damaging. But in many ways, um, you know, those that voted for him will, will say, I told you so. Um, okay, my last question, it brings us to today. So you see how we started in 2000? Yeah. See what I did? 2002, today, we did a whole thing. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna come back. But uh, this Ukraine shit, like, do you, do you, I mean, what do you, like, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think, do you think this is what's going to be the thing that gets impeachment proceedings well, started? It seems, I was listening to The Daily this morning, and I was like, this, I'm, I must be listening to, like, sci-fi or something. Like, this can't be real. Well, first of all, my sense, um, you know, having some background in, in um, government communication, uh, is there's more than the one transcript out there. So the Democrats better be super broad about what they insist on seeing. Wait, but I don't understand that. It's not just going to be the one call. There'll be other calls, other communications, transcript of meetings that Giuliani and others might have. I think this was, you know, this was, le this was not like Trump saying, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll bring up the Biden thing. Like, this was clearly a, a multi-pronged um, effort over a period of weeks. So there's more to this, number one. Number two... Um, I, um, this is gonna sound like somehow I'm minimizing Mueller and Russia, I'm not. But you have to understand that, this is one thing I don't think Democrats on the Hill do really well is, there is a th performance uh, art to this and theatricality. So after some of the recent shootings um, uh, in El Paso and Ohio, if you remember, um, the House Democrats kept saying, well, we passed HR 8, the Senate just needs to pass it. No one's paying attention to that. Bring everybody back, vote on it that day, and then march over to the Senate. Like, come on, man, get into this. Like, if you want to drive something, you got to drive it. It's not enough to say, we passed something six months ago. Like, it doesn't work that way. So, impeachment. Um, I would imagine if the Ukraine thing shakes out as we think it might, I would actually ground the impeachment inquiry on two things. I would actually start by saying, we, uh, Russia and Mueller is not going to be part of the impeachment inquiry. We're going to look into Ukraine, which is an uh, effort right now to blackmail foreign government to get involved in our election. We know you have a history of that, so you won't stop. And to all the personal corruption around enrichment of he and his family. I would center it there because I think that stuff matters to voters. They are clearly high crimes and misdemeanors, potentially, we'll see. So I, I think Democrats need to be careful about that. I think if it looks like just everything we don't like about Donald Trump, I don't think that's gonna be super effective. And, and leaving aside politics, like not very, um, I don't think that, um, that's not what impeachment proceedings are for. Um, and so if the Ukraine thing shakes out like it might, like it is going to just be a smoking gun, you know, a hot ember that's now, okay? And my guess is there's a lot of people in this country, even those that might have voted for Trump, who are not going to be okay with that. You know, the Russia thing's murky and cloudy. So I'm not excusing that at all. But, you know, how you handle impeachment is going to say a lot about whether Donald Trump gets a second term. So I would handle it with enormously skilled hands and great care. So I worry a little bit about, I th I've become convinced we need to move forward, but I would be thinking carefully about how you stage manage that and what's inbounds for that inquiry and what's not. I have so many more questions for you. I have so much more to say, but um, I want to give our community the opportunity to ask them 
uh, interact with you their own because it's not just what a great moderator the though, Manny huh? show. Oh, there thanks. should be a debate here, man. What Maybe. debate? A presidential primary debate. That'd be good. <laughs> oh God, um, I love that. Well, you could probably arrange that. <laughs> I get the yeah. sense you've got your tentacles in a lot of different, um, like crevices. Wow. <laughs> Okay, Jupiter is in the back. Who's, who'd like to ask the first question? Jupiter, how about this lady in the stripes? Also, excuse me if I gender you improperly, please correct me. Thank you, and if you don't mind holding the microphone right up to your mouth and saying your name. Hi, I'm Michelle, and I have a question about um, battleground states, and what battleground states do you think activists in the Bay Area should focus on as the most strate strategic use of their time if they're gonna take a trip anywhere? Right. Well, first of all, the campaign, if they're running a good campaign, will be pretty clear about where they need the resources more than others, right? Uh, I mean, I'm hoping they're putting out almost daily calls for we're 4,000 people short for our canvassing trips this weekend. We need 500 people on the phones. So uh, from a proximity standpoint, I if Donald Trump wins Nevada, he's probably going to get like 360 electoral votes. But I think he will contest Nevada. So there'll be important work to do in Nevada. We also have like important congressional races there. So physically, that will be the closest. Um, the other uh, Pacific time zone state that will clearly be a battleground is Arizona. Um, and um, then I think you get into Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. There are reports today that the Trump campaign um, is considering Michigan uh, kind of a stretch. Um, I think it's way too early to think about that. I think those three will be core, Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. There's a big debate in our party about Florida. But, you know, Gillum won it, almost won it and was under corruption investigation. I loved Andrew Gillum, that's a tough way to go into election. Bill Nelson was a terrible candidate. Rick Scott was a better candidate, and they both almost won. Hillary Clinton got really close, we won it narrowly twice. As the Electoral College changes is around us now, Trump's turnout in Florida, there was a million more people who voted in Florida last time than when Obama won it, a million. Even a state like, by the way, some of that went to Hillary, a lot of that was Trump. You remember, some of you, a lot of you are actually too young to remember this, which is great to see young people here. But in 04, when John Kerry lost to George W. Bush, it came down to Ohio. The Kerry campaign got the votes they thought they needed to win Ohio. George Bush got almost an unbelievably large number of conservatives out to the polls. That's what Trump's gonna do in Florida. Despite that, if we have a candidate and an organization and all of us help register voters and do turnout, you're on the doorstep in Florida. Um, and it's 29 electoral votes, so I would not give up that strategic chess piece. Um, Trump will clearly look at Minnesota, as he should, and he'll probably look at New Hampshire to try and expand the field, even if he's not gonna win those to put pressure. Democrats, I think, will look at Georgia and look at Texas. Um, and just so you know, we all would love to win Texas. I can't wait till we win Texas. But if you get 47% of the vote and lose by a point or two, you might as well get 7% of the vote. It's an electoral college, doesn't matter. So you better only choose to target a state if you have some no guarantee, of course, but you think you have a credible pathway to victory. And I will say that this whole election could come down to Donald Trump's win number. What do I mean by that? Remember, he won Wisconsin with 47.2% of the vote. Michigan with 47.7% of the vote. Pennsylvania, 48.4. If he's got to get to 49, 49 and a half, he might not be able to do that. Why do you think they're spending so much time defining the Democrats as infanticide, wanting to kill babies, you're not going to be able to fly on an airplane. You're not going to be able to drive a car. You won't be able to eat a hamburger. Because they don't, they're not trying to get those people who might be swayed by that to vote for Trump. They want them not to vote or vote third party. So a big part of this campaign is, can you keep that third party number down? Because the Democrat will benefit more to that. So those are the core battlegrounds. So if you're thinking about traveling somewhere and you want to cut down your flight time or drive time, I would definitely make plans for Arizona. 
um, maybe Nevada. Uh, but Arizona is important because it's not crazy. I mean, I don't think it's likely, but it's not crazy to say, what if our nominee gets M Michigan and Pennsylvania, but not Wisconsin? Well, Wisconsin's 11 electoral votes, Arizona's electoral elect 11 electoral votes. Switch them, you get to 272 and you win. So I think you got to have Arizona in play. You're brilliant. Um, let's give the let's give it to Elliot and then Daniel and then we'll give it to you. Uh, thanks for being here, Mr. Plouffe. Um, you know, just on that topic, I, I was in uh, Arizona uh, for Hillary and Reno for Hillary and then uh, Reno for Obama. And earlier you talked about each of us knows like 30 to 70 people and their likelihood of voting, um, but. You know, when I'm when you're on the ground there, they they have you canvas, and it it seems like a like a big waste of time. Like every 15 homes you go to, maybe one person opens the door, and then it, no one really wants to talk to you. Um, why 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 with technology as it is, why why are we still doing things that way? Well, it's a great question. I actually address this in my book because I don't think you want to gild a lily here. You need to make clear, like, you're going to canvas. So first of all... What does that mean, Gil the Lily? Uh, like, basically make it seem like it's awesome when it's not. I uh, love that. Yeah. So, um, so, so technology is incredibly important, obviously. Uh, it helps us scale and reach, and there's no doubt that somebody may consume a piece of content. Maybe it's a farmer in Wisconsin who's struggling with how to vote. They see a neighbor put out a Facebook video about they just can't vote for Trump because of what he's done to their economy, and they decide, yeah, that's me. I'm going to vote. No, no doubt. But so here's the way I'd put it, though. So let's say that um, you go to Michigan to register voters. So let's say that's your task, and you spend four hours canvassing. Campaign gives you a list. I hope it's a good list of only people that are currently not registered that they think would be candidates uh, to register, and if they did, they would vote for our candidate. And you knock on 20 doors, and 14 people aren't home, and three people don't want to talk to you. And one person does and says, F you, like, I hate your candidate, I'm not doing it. And then you actually talk to two people, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, how do I do that? Can I do it on the line? Okay, let's say 5,000 people, which is not unrealistic, would be doing the same thing in Michigan on that day. That's 10,000 people, and that's what Hillary lost the state by. So you, you have to look at it in aggregate. It is, yeah, you call people, you knock on their doors, you're like, how does this matter? You just have to hold on to that. Like It, it could, literally could come down to a vote or two per precinct. So now there's a lot of data out there that tries to analyze, is it, is it digital advertising? Is it TV advertising, direct mail? Nobody thinks direct mail works. Uh, you know, is it informal conversations? There's no doubt the closer someone is to the person, the better. So the most likely someone is to register is because someone who's a friend or family member does it. Same with volunteering. Super important persuasion-wise. So the best conversation is the right person talking to the right person at the right time. So we all running around neighborhoods we're not from is no substitute for that. I think canvassing is more effective when you're dealing with turnout registration. You're still going to have all the like not answers, rudeness, but you're not trying to persuade somebody who's like, you're not from out here, right? The one exception to that is sometimes voters will be like, you're not from here, what are you doing here? Well, let me tell you why I care about this. Or you're canvassing with like your 14-year-old. People are interested in that. Like, what are you doing this for? So just don't, so you, you've got to look at your effort in the aggregate and knowing that it is deeply inefficient. But when you pull all that inefficient activity together, it can make a difference. And the other thing, I, I mean, I, you know, in the Obama campaigns, it was, we thought, the most effective way to do it. So let's say you talk, you're in Philadelphia, you're in West Philly, and you talk to, you know, uh, Shamika Johnson, who's thinking about, she doesn't know if she's going to vote. It's like, 
I'm busy that day or I don't like either candidate, you have a good conversation with her, comes election day, I guarantee you when she's thinking about voting, she's not going to be thinking about our candidate. She's going to be thinking about you and the conversation she had with the person at the door. So um, particularly, I think, those of you that work in um, most tech companies or any consumer-facing company where you're able to measure efficiency much more easily, it can seem frustrating, but you just got to aggregate all that up. Um, so, um, and you know, the other thing I'd say is, you know, it's not like we're, you know, going to be prepping the candidates for their debates or, you know, writing their speeches or making their ads. So what can we do? But just think about that math. And I know that can be frustrating. You're never going to not get done from canvassing saying, I have no idea if that helped or not. But just think about it in aggregate. And you just think about, look at Milwaukee. I mean, Hillary Clinton lost the state by 29, lost Wisconsin by 23,000 votes. 29,000 people voted uh, more for Obama than her. So the entire win margin was in Milwaukee, you know? Um, where are you, Jupiter? There you are. Um, Great question, by the way. Let's give the, uh, the next one to Daniel over here in the gray. Can we pass the mic over to Daniel? That was a good question. It's a great question. And you know what? Was, you was a great answer. Well. It's almost like you've done this before. No, it's... I actually like but you're right. I, I have the same frustrations. I remember when I was in New Hampshire, and the, the empowering thing was knowing that there were thousands and thousands of other people doing the same thing as me all over the country. And when you have that visual of, like, thousands of doors being knocked... It feels really special. Yeah. Daniel. Hey, hey. Uh, thanks for being here. Sure. I was already stressed about the stakes of the next election, but you have ratcheted that up even further. Um, when you think about the last, w when you think about Trump or the last 10 or 15 years of relative dysfunction and unhappiness with how government is working, and you situate that in the broader historical context, where do you land on whether kind of fundamental democracy reforms are needed, whether that's changing the Supreme Court and term limits, whether it's changing the Electoral College, whether it's things like the filibuster and getting rid of it. Right. Where, where do you land on, do we need this stuff? How do, you, how do you sort of put that in the spectrum of where are we? Well, I mean, this is just, I'm a citizen now, right? So my view is, one, uh, I'm not sure on the court yet. Yeah, we should change the Electoral College. I'm not sure it'll be done in my lifetime, but we should fight for it. So that is one like, yeah, but we've got to win by the rules as they exist, right? So it's not how many yards you get, it's how many points you get. And so the Electoral College is the same. I think it's likely we win the popular vote by more than Hillary did, and we could still lose. So we should fight to change that, not because it benefits our party, because the system is unfair. Um, but, um, and I definitely think we should get rid of the filibuster. Um, and I don't say that lightly. Um, I mean, listen, the Senate... First of all, Democrats to win the presidency and get to 50% of the vote is harder than people think. This is going to sound self-serving because I, you know, worked for Obama and uh, bleed Obama blue, but I think we might have underestimated his political gifts and the ability to win Trump-Obama voters and turn out young people and African-Americans. Like, the last person to get 51% of the vote was Franklin Roosevelt. Okay? It's hard. There are in battleground states, and, you know, it's easier for a Democrat to win the popular vote, as we've now seen twice in the last 16 years. All, every battleground state has more conservatives than liberals, and Republicans and conservatives are more likely to vote than Democrats. They, get, they are closer to the finish line in every state. So we have to do two things that are harder than they do. We have to win more of the moderate vote. You can't win the White House as a Democrat without winning the moderate vote. And you've got to blow out turnout. 
And that doesn't mean you choose, like, I'm going to moderate. Be who you are, man. If you don't have a message that can't get, like, a kid on campus uh, at Ann Arbor fired up and went over in Macomb County, uh, an iron worker who flipped from Obama to Trump, you probably don't deserve to be in the White House, or much less be our nominee, in my view. you got to do both things. Um, so I think we do need structural reform. But I think so much of the anxiety out there, yeah, a lot of it's about government malfunction. Um, listen, I'm not an economist. I've played one on TV occasionally. But I think one of the things that, that we're dealing with, in particularly in rural and exurban areas and some blue-collar areas, is, listen, uh, everybody that's going to vote in this election, and certainly their parents, um, was taught that there's something called the American dream. And, you know, you didn't have to go to college for it. As long as you worked hard, kept your nose clean, you were going to have a house that you could afford, you were going to have a car, maybe a pickup truck too, you are going to be able to go out to dinner. That was based on a period in post-World War II where everything was going right for America. That, that period did exist. That period doesn't happen anymore. So if you grew up, if you are living in a town in like Algona, Iowa, um, you probably have to drive, you know, 60 miles to make more than 12 bucks an hour. So it's, 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 that's, you know, they, we'll give the Trump guy a try. We'll give the black guy from o Chicago Obama a try. Like, but there's something core here. One of the things that frustrates me is Trump, of course, is not being honest about it. I don't love, you know, the honesty we're getting from the Democratic candidates on this. This economic challenge is not like, let's pass three or four great pieces of legislation. This is going to be super hard, and it's going to get more complicated, given largely because of what's going to happen out in this area and what it's going to affect to the economy in the next couple generations. So I worry about that. Um, but... Um, as it relates to this narrow election, um, there are enough persuadable voters. So here's the thing. It's, it, th this debate drives me crazy. Is it about the base or is it about swing? And you have to pick your jersey. It's, a, you know, it's simple data and numbers. How many frickin' votes do you need to win a state? What do you think can come from registration, from additional turnout, and from persuasion, and put it all together? In North Carolina, it's going to be more turnout and registration. In Wisconsin and Michigan, it's going to be more persuasion than it is registration and turnout, even with our problems in Detroit and Milwaukee. So it, it needs to be both. Um, and I think the way you get back those Obama-Trump voters, unfortunately, is not one thing. Some of them actually are going to say, I thought he was going to you know, clean up his act and he's just an embarrassment, or I wish he'd stop tweeting, or I don't like health care, he's going to cut Medicare, I don't like the trade war, I don't like the taxes. One of the things that concerns me, and I'm starting to work with a, a group called Acronym now that's starting to do some work, um, uh, you know, an outside group doing work in the battleground states, is we better get smart on that real quick. Like, who's movable, who's gettable, who's not, what's the messages? Um, both to do that work now, but also to help inform the work that to come. So, um, but, but there is not one, that doesn't mean that our nominee, the nominee needs to have a message that makes everything work, like that architecture, but the way you're going to get some of these voters back is going to be different, and that makes it super challenging. Because you'd be saying in Wisconsin, maybe ultimately you're trying to just get 50 to 75,000 people uh, to, who are truly up for grabs, persuadable voters. Think about that. But 10,000 may be on Medicare, and 10,000 may be on uh, trade, and 10,000 may be on taxes. That's super complex. It wouldn't be complex, by the way, if it was like a four to six year effort. We're like a private company. We're going public in six years. Like We can like test and iterate. We got like the future of the world at stake here. We got to figure it out. So, but I think um, not to bum you out further. I think this unrest <laughs> in our politics is going to only get worse because the economic opportunities in this country are getting more and more um, divided, um, and that is not the story people were told to expect. 
So you've got to understand that. It's not just their lives today. It is different than what they were told to expect in such fundamental ways. Um, and you know, that's why I think all over time, I wouldn't be surprised if you see third parties emerge, which by the way, I think would be a good thing. Um, I know that doesn't always make me popular at democratic events, but you know, competition is generally pretty good. And I think young people in particular are gonna be looking for different solutions. All right. Not Ju yet. Third parties in like 2028. 20, Not now. Jupiter, this um, person in the blue, fabulous, really amazing. It's waterproof. It's waterproof? <laughs> Great. Hi, David. Um, I'd actually like to follow up on the question that um, my friend here asked. Um, for those of us who work in tech, when we're considering how best to spend our time, which you said is the most precious thing, is it canvassing or is it taking the best data scientists, the best designers, the best growth marketers and applying that? And you know, if you look at some of the Russian stuff, it actually is really shoddy. Um, and we're spending a lot of our time on things that are trivial compared to the future of the world. So I'm wondering why the downplay of the digital side, is it, an, is it intergenerational? Is it because the candidates don't value the digital part as much, what, what is the... No, the candidates value it. So, so if you're thinking about how can I spend a weekend here or an hour there, you're gonna be thinking about things that are more volunteer-like. If you wanna go move to you know, Boston or Philadelphia or work on one of these campaigns, you should do that. They're in desperate need. So whether it's better data scientists, behavioral scientists, uh, great content folks, um, uh, growth folks, now, all these campaigns have hired people. Some of them come from politics, some from the private sector. You have seen in politics over the last 10 years, this really started with Obama, more people, not just from California, from Austin, New York, leave their private sector technology companies to go into campaigns. You know, like Hillary's uh, you know, head of product was a former Google and YouTube engineer. OC? Um, OC, you know, so great. I mean, so we were filled with all of the people who were doing data science for us were not from politics. Most of the money the campaign's gonna spend is on digital, of course. So, but if you've got, um, if you decide that I'd like to go do, give all my time to something like this, I think you're gonna find most of these campaigns being all ears, particularly in the last six months when the nominee basically has to go from a little primary campaign, they'll have a few hundred people in their campaign, to thousands of people. And some of those are gonna be field organizers in New Hampshire, and a lot of them are gonna be people in technology and digital. So. Um, and let's, uh, so, so I agree Russia was shoddy. That's, I mean, Russia was part of why Hillary lost, not all the reasons why she lost. And there's no doubt that the Trump campaign, I think, innovated in 16 and continues to innovate in the amount of content they're testing. So they'll test dozens, if not hundreds of pieces of content, um, which is similar to what a lot of best practice consumer companies do. Too many of the Democratic candidates are testing like two or three versions of their content, really a problem, number one. Um, but, you know, let's, the Democrats did have an awesome 18. And a lot of those candidates were doing really smart digital work. Republicans got their clock clean. So I think we shouldn't assume that somehow we're gonna lose this election because they have a quote unquote digital advantage, but we need all the best all hands on deck. So I think there is a difference between someone who says, I just have an afternoon, should I you know, make calls or can I go down to Arizona? Someone who says like, what doesn't work in any organization say, I'm an expert and I'd like to give you my advice. I mean, that's okay. We need people in seats doing the job 18 hours a day. That's what we need. So if that's something you're interested in, you should do it because God knows we need it. Both, mostly in the campaign itself, but there's, whether it's Planned Parenthood or I mentioned acronym, there's Priorities USA, there's labor unions, there's NARAL, they all no doubt could up their digital game. So I think from like a budget standpoint, it's not like they're saying we're gonna buy a bunch of TV ads anymore, but the sophistication, I'll give you something I'm scared about. So 
Donald Trump was in New Mexico the other day doing a campaign rally. Um, you know, maybe it's my dated view of New Mexico. I don't see how Donald Trump can get to a win number there, but he was there. And his campaign manager, Brad Parscale, actually tweeted out um, all the data from the event. Now, there's a chance it's all utter bullshit. But if it was true, it was interesting. It was, here's how many people signed up. Here's how many people attended. Here's how many were Democrats. I believe New Mexico does have party affiliation on the voter file, so that would be true, potentially. And then the thing that was really interesting to me is he said, here's how many Republicans were here who've only voted in zero or one of the last four elections. It's a lot. So that's where, like, great, that's not just, okay, that's good initial cut. Then what do you do with that? You know, and how do you actually seal the deal with those people so they end up voting for Donald Trump, maybe getting active? So um, they, they are a digital-first operation. Whoever our nominee is, like Elizabeth Warren's running a digital-first campaign. Obviously, most of the candidates are, some better than others. But it's, it's more, so it's not about the concept. It's more about the level of execution. Um, and, uh, but Trump's campaign is digital-first. Uh, and... and you know, in the last election, I thought they did something really smart, which is they obviously spent a lot of money on digital, as did Hillary, but they were less concerned about, you know, somebody, they wanted people to take action online so that then they would be able to personally identify them. You know, click a petition or say they're gonna vote. But even if they didn't, they just believed we think we're reaching a lot of people, we're thinking pretty good about the lookalike audiences. And so, I don't know, I, I think in, in many respects, they were smart that way. Um, and I hope we learn from that, that we don't overly prescribe our digital activity to just stuff we can measure and track. It's always great to do that, but I hope we cast a, a wider net. So, but if you're at all interested in devoting some time, whether that's for 14 months or four months or six months, there's gonna be massive, massive need and massive interest. So I'll tell you in Chicago in 2012, like and eight, but even more so in 12, like, you know, the, the percentage of people who worked around data science, our technology department, from an infrastructure standpoint, security, um, data science, behavioral science, like almost none of those people came from politics. They came from the private sector or from academia, they did it, they left. Um, and so we need that again. Now, is that as important as the quality of our candidate? The no. state of the economy, no, but this thing, just like canvassing, what you're talking about, is stuff on the margins, and we better assume this thing gets decided on the margins, right? So. Um, you know, whether it's technology or the field operation, you've got to use a football term. It's like your field goal unit. A lot of games are decided by a field goal. So that's what all this, I think, adds up to. Super important. Are we cool staying till 745, everyone? Is yes. that all right? You guys got time for him? Fabulous. All right. Our friend in the stripes. Yeah. Th thank you, Manny, for organizing this phenomenal discussion. Um, David, you said that uh, you can't win the White House without moderate voters. So thinking about battleground states, how does a platform that includes taking away private health insurance play? Well, that's a great question. So I'd say, first of all, the debate over health care is ultimately between our nominee and Donald Trump. And whether you have Medicare for all or Medicare for all who want it. If you cannot win again a debate against health uh, uh, and healthcare with Donald Trump, you probably don't deserve to win, okay? You probably don't deserve to win. Second point, vast majority of people in this country already know how they're gonna vote. So you're dealing with a small swath. Some of those people care about healthcare, not all. So you've gotta really think about it that way. Are there voters who are gonna make their decision based on the candidates on healthcare? And there are some. There's enough that we should worry about this. I do think that um, my guess is by the end of the primary, you know, at least half the Democrats who vote 
will say they're not cool losing private health insurance, at least not next year. Maybe, they, maybe they're open to it in a transition period. So it's something to be navigated. So if you've got, whether it's Warren or Harris or Sanders, um, if they're our nominee, um, you know they're going to have a little extra burden, I think, than some of the others who can really just tattoo Trump on health care, not to be too crude about it. But like he literally is a pinata on health care. So, um, you know, so, so I don't know whether ultimately when it gets to general election, they're not going to change their position. That would be fatal. But do they say, you know what, I think I'd like a three-year transition period or, you know, some gates to make sure. Um, but it's, um, I think it'll be a challenge. Um, listen, healthcare politics is fraught um, because there's a serious, this is a great example of loss aversion theory. Like, I, you know, we, we have the scars on this, those of us that went through, you know, the Affordable Care Act. Um, it's kind of like school reform in a way, and education reform. People don't say they're super satisfied. They know there could be something better, but the thing they fear much more than the current status quo is a change that could be worse. So that's what we have to fight through. So do I think that, that, that because one of our a nominee may have Medicare for all, that means we lose the election? No. I think it ups the degree of difficulty of winning the health care campaign within a campaign in a pretty serious way, uh, for sure. Um, and, uh, um, and I think, by the way, I would expect that in our primary, that will become the dominant issue um, over the next four months. I think that's where you're going to see it's not just going to be on these goofy debates anymore. Excuse me. It's going to be like in Iowa and in South Carolina and in Nevada. People are going to have events on this. And they'll start criticizing their opponents. I think it's going to get raw, as it should. Like, this is the most general political campaign I've ever seen. Like, Why do you think that is? Well, it's early. It's a big field. But, like, we shouldn't be afraid if this thing gets a little tough. Like, you're going up against Donald Trump. You're going to be president. Like, I want to see somebody, like, really, really get knocked out or somebody try to knock them out and see how they deal with it. You gotta be tested. So let's not worry about that. This whole notion of, will people come home? That is like at the bottom of the list. Our nominee is not going to lose the primary because enough Democrats don't go home. Now we ought to be smart about that to my earlier comments. We need to spend time with people who are upset their candidate didn't win and make sure they feel welcome. And it takes work. But come election day, November 3rd, 2020, that's not gonna be high on the list. So don't worry if this thing gets tough. Okay, we need it to get tough, in my view. We have to have it get tough. In a way, the Hillary Sanders primary was not that tough either. There were moments, um, but in a way, Hillary never really felt like she'd go after Sanders. So it didn't rep. It, it was not good training for the main event against Trump. Like I can't tell you how important it was for us to get through with Hillary. Honestly, when the first few weeks when we started tussling with McCain, we're like, this is pretty freaking easy. Um, Hillary was tough, and her campaign was strong. Got harder, by the way. But I, um, I really believe, so, but this is going to be, so that's what I would say. We should win the health care debate. It shouldn't cost us the presidency. But if somebody who's a Medicare for All candidate gets a nomination, they're just going to have to fight a little bit harder to win that. And I think they can do it. All right. Do you have a question with the stripes? Uh, no, uh, no, I'm sorry, not you, right behind you? With the, right behind you. Yeah, sorry about that. The stripes. Hi, David. Hey. I have a quick question for you. A lot of the focus when it uh, focuses on voter turnout uh, tends to be on the existing universe of people who have voted before in a previous election or are kind of shaky. They may have come out once for an election how many years ago, but they didn't come out recently. When you look at many battleground states like Georgia where they're um, executing just <laughs> brutal voter suppression, 
How does that factor into the math as a campaign manager looking at you know, the upcoming election with Trump doing whatever he can to win the election, as well as other Republicans? I think they're very focused on winning at whatever cost. Um, how do you factor that force into the uphill climb that Democrats need to do in order to make sure that the existing universe is solid, protected enough to move forward to even begin to look at new voter turnout and all that persuasion techniques? It's a great question. Before you answer, I just want to plug, right after this, we have the former chair of the Federal Elections Commission coming, Anne Ravel. So if you're interested in elections, elections work, the Federal Elections Commission, immediately after this, the former chair of the FEC is going to be in conversation. That would be a great session. Tonight, yes. Tonight? In 20 minutes. It's a great question. So this is going to sound a little bit flip. It's not. First of all, we just have to deal with it. So ultimately, how do we fight back against all the things they're trying to do? Well, like Stacey Abrams has a great new organization, Fair Fight. Um, you know, we did a lot of this in the Obama years. You file lawsuits. We won a lot of them to get early vote restored and voter ID change. You're not going to win all of them. We actually have to win elections in more places. It's a party. Okay? If we really just become an urban coastal party, when a lot of those states that are battleground states in presidential elections, they're just going to continue to make it harder for people to vote. So we got to get more competitive politically. Um, so first of all, the Trump campaign is going to try and do this. Of course we know they're going to try and suppress vote. I mean, they're going to send out the, um, you know, we've never seen this in American democracy really since the rag sheets of like the 1800s. They will be sending sophisticated messages about your polling location has changed, early vote's been canceled, you have to bring a birth certificate. Okay? It's going to be insidious stuff. The other thing they're going to do, though, is they're going to, the most important thing to their campaign, other than trying to make sure the third parties get enough, is fine unregistered Republicans. So, and they'll be somewhat successful about that. So both sides are doing that. So for us, first of all, we gotta fight through, what does that mean? It takes more money, it takes more organization, you have to walk voters through it. Actually, you do need an ID. Or, no, you can't vote early this Sunday because they change the laws, but you can vote, you know, the very last weekend. Like, think about the organizational, so the question, does canvassing matter? It can be inefficient, but that's the type of thing you need to do too. We need to talk to these voters. So, resources, now that takes more financial resources, human resources more, and you just have a great organization to deal with that. We dealt with this in 08. 08, we had very little uh, laws that we ran in that race that were like we see today. In 12, we had a bunch. So what did it mean? We needed to spend a lot more money, a lot more time, and a lot more uh, uh, volunteer hours and staff hours to deal with that. So we got to fight through it. Like, it can't be an excuse to lose. The, it, is, it is one of the most insidious things we've seen in modern American history. Um, and it's frustrating that their entire growth strategy seems to be only to allow people that look like them and think like them to vote. But, and I don't think that's smart long-term, but that's where we are. But all we can do is fight through it. We have to try and change it in the medium and long-term, win in this election. So that's why volunteer hours, financial resources are so important. We have to look at both universes. You will not win Florida, or even come close, or North Carolina, or Arizona, if you don't register hundreds and hundreds of thousands of unregistered voters. Okay? So let me give you an example from, from the Obama years. Florida, 08, much less 12. I mean, if you remember, the national news media stopped polling Florida because Romney was so far ahead. Our own polls did not show we could win the state. But we looked at the numbers and said, if we can actually register about a half million young African-American, young Cubans, young Latinos, young whites, 
We think we got a shot. So that doesn't mean we didn't focus on the sporadic voting. You know, that's the easier task in a way, as hard as it is. You got to do it all. So we have to, we shouldn't, yes, the task has gotten harder, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at what's possible to add to that pile of potential voters. And we've got to do it with a tremendous amount of registration. I mean, to, a little bit optimistic. The good news is, amongst eligible voters in America, all eligible voters, um, about two-thirds of who are registered, obviously Donald Trump would lose in a landslide. If we can just get those that are registered out, he'd lose too, even the battleground state. So I'd rather be in that position than the alternative, but we know we have a higher degree of difficulty. So, um, but I think the most important way to fight through this is to have the kind of organization. So if you're in a precinct uh, in Milwaukee, you know, maybe there's, you know, based on data, you know, and self-reported um, conversations, there's 25 people that you think might be at risk of not voting because it's gotten harder. Well, you need to have a human being talk to those 25 people. Do you have any questions? Do you know what you have to bring? Do you know the polling locations change? Like, you're gonna send them mail, for whatever that's worth. You'll send them digital advertising, okay? But we have to do that. So you have to treat every voter in this election in a battleground state, particularly where they make it harder to vote, as the most precious golden egg of all time. Really. And again, if you're just thinking about like, really, that's crazy, I may talk to 20 people. You just, again, gotta think of that aggregation. And if we do that, I think we'll be okay. But, so that's another reason this is gonna be hard. Russian media, Trump media, not just fake news, distorting rules around the elections, telling people false information. We've got voter suppression efforts. I'm sure we'll see more of what we saw in Georgia as we head into next year. So, you know, we need to file every lawsuit possible. Um, we'll win some, we'll lose some. But, but I think the core thing is we better be prepared for it. Um, and and that, takes, that takes an enormous amount of money, but more importantly, people. It's a great question. Okay, I'm going to ask the last question mm -hmm. uh, because we do have another event after this, and you have some time in between if you'd like to meet him. Um, so we ask everyone this question who, com who comes here, but I'm also have an addendum question. So you are uh, arguably the most successful uh, campaign manager in United States history. One well, of now the that's Kellyanne Conway, so we've got to change that. But. Yeah, okay. sorry, man, but that's just reality. Doesn't matter what you did in the past. What have you done for me lately? Yeah. Um, that's a Janet Jackson song, actually. Um, so Dating myself. Yeah. Okay. What, uh, so you were the proliferator of hope. You know, you, you pushed that message across the country. So I want to end on a hopeful note. So I want to ask you, what are you hopeful about in this upcoming election year? What, what generally are you hope for, hopeful about? And then the second part is, what's one thing that everyone in this room can do to help uh, you with your work or what you think the work is of furthering pro democracy? Well, there's a lot to do further in democracy, you know, fighting against insidious efforts to make it harder to vote. But we've got kind of um, our Normandy right in front of us, so we've got to win this election. So everybody do everything you humanly can do next year. Whether you think it works or not, uh, work. None of us want to th just think about this. I do this almost every day now. It's uh, 1 a.m. November 4th. Uh, Pacific time, so it's super close election, deep into the night on the East Coast. Uh, and Wisconsin gets called and Donald Trump strides up to the podium with his grifter family, um, having won a second term. <laughs> Think about that, not out of the question. So all we can control is our own personal activity and responsibility. I'm actually incredibly hopeful. First of all, I'm hopeful because of young people. Um, you know, you see the amazing Greta today uh, in New York. By the way, that great desk era, Trump. Um, you see all the young people in this country organizing um, uh, for um, you know, gun control. 
Um, you see uh, young people organizing to change minimum wage in counties, criminal justice reform. You're starting to see you know, real breakthroughs here in California on housing. So I'm optimistic about a lot of things. Um, I think that um, you know, climate change and the economic inequality and lack of opportunity in our country are two you know, major issues. Um, and we don't have much time to get them right. So that's, that's, am I, I wouldn't say I'm even optimistic about that, but we have no chance but to fight against it. Uh, and I think we'll get there because of young people. Again, I think people of my generation should get off the political stage uh, and let this young generation really make it happen. Um, you know, this is not an election for space cowboys. Maybe some of our candidates can be space cowboys, but the people running these races need to be uh, next generation and next practice. So I'm hopeful about that. Um, I'm also just hopeful uh, when, when you, there is an, there's an ethos of service and worldliness and problem solving and bias to action and bias to optimism in this, in this young generation. Uh, there can be some other challenges when you're managing them. Um, uh, but I will take that uh, with, with, with just that um, brilliance and hopefulness um, that is so inspiring. And so that, that makes me hopeful. The other thing I'll say is, so far, it's, well, it's, we have... It's twine. We have... That's okay. Weird, yeah. I don't want to underestimate the damage. You know, you think about LGBT uh, community, um, uh, you know, uh, the racism, the misogyny, um, the erosion of alliances, um, what he's done to health care, the tax cuts, the deficit is now the highest in our country since World War II. Not because we used it to create jobs, but cut taxes for the wealthy. So like, like the list of, of unpardonable sins is high. But we as a country, you know, are showing great resilience. We, haven't, we, we have to dig out of the last four years, but we haven't completely fallen apart. And I tell you, there's a strength there that's so inspiring to me. Um, and um, uh, so, so that gives me some hopefulness. Um, again, I'm not under, I, I don't want to underplay the damage that's been done. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure we will um, be, be the same country if it's eight years. I'm not sure we will. We could have a nuclear war. I think that's probably not crazy. We could have sectarian violence all over the country. Um, it's going to be pretty brutal. So th this is important, but but the resilience the American people have shown, and even some of our institutions under great attack. I mean, you look at what's happening in the world of journalism. I mean, what folks are doing, um, you know, mostly in the U.S., but even in foreign capitals to cover this administration is just remarkable. So there's a lot of great hopefulness. Um, I think reasons to be hopeful. But, um, you know, I think whether we have the opportunity to bend the curve on climate change, whether we have the opportunity to make our economy a little more fair, it does depend on this next election. Because on climate change, for instance, you know, the message Trump is sending, even though Russia and even Syria and China and North Korea and Iran think all of them are in the Paris Climate Accords. So they haven't gotten out. You think they're doing really anything to abide by it? Of course not. I mean, he's basically giving the world a hall pass on this. So, you know, for no other reason, I tell people, like, you don't think there's going to be a way for if we elect a Democrat on November 3rd that we don't get back into Paris? Of course we will. And that in and of itself, that's not, you know, the Green New Deal, and it's not uh, a carbon tax and all the things we need, but it's really powerful. So, um, you know, elections, um, um, you know, in this country, we settle our disputes at the ballot box. Even the Civil War is predicated on an election. So um, we've got to treat it accordingly. But uh, my hope is for, for the young people in this country who I think are really going to bend the arc towards justice um, and hold all of our feet to the fire and do remarkable things out there and use things like technology to scale change. 
Can we give a round of applause to this man? 